Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 316. It's titled, Paper Rocks or Digits? What Makes the Best Money? I've been reading a number of books recently on money. Money, the Unauthorized Biography by Felix Martin, and Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing by Jacob Goldstein. Both of these books have examples of different types of money that have been used in the past. Fascinating examples that you might not be aware of. And we want to look at them and think about what is it that makes something money? Money evolves and has evolved and will continue to evolve. And what we use as money today might be very different decades from now. The first example is from the island of Yap. This is an island in the Western Pacific, part of the Caroline Islands. It is now part of the Federated States of Micronesia. The people of Yap lived on their own and were separated from other cultures for many, many years. Well, in 1903, an anthropologist who had also been trained as a medical doctor from New England, William Henry Furness, went to Yap for two months and studied this people. And it wasn't a very advanced economy with basically three products, fish, coconut, and sea cucumbers, but they had something unique that they used for money. Furness describes his money as large, solid, thick stone wheels, ranging in diameter from a foot to 12 feet, having the center a hole varying in size with the diameter of the stone, wherein a pole may be inserted sufficiently large and strong to bear the weight and facilitate transportation. This was their money. It was called fei, F-E-I, or also it's called rai, R-A-I. The money was quarried in an island 300 miles away, Babelthuop, and then it was transported on rafts towed behind canoes that had sails on them. Took a lot of effort to get this money. When Furness first saw it, he realized this was really heavy and wrote, when it takes four strong men to steal the price of a pig, burglary cannot but prove a somewhat disheartening occupation. These things were so big and heavy, you couldn't steal them. But then he observed, as transactions took place, that these stones were never moved. He wrote, The noteworthy feature of this stone currency is that it is not necessary for its owner to reduce it to possession. After concluding a bargain which involves the price of a fay too large to be conveniently moved, its new owner is quite content to accept the bare acknowledgement of ownership, without so much as a mark to indicate the exchange. The coin remains undisturbed on the former owner's premises. In fact, 
There was one family, Furnace pointed out, where the stone was lost from where it was quarried and had been several hundred feet at the bottom of the ocean for several generations. Yet, the family that owned it, everyone recognized that they still own that and that they were wealthy. Furnace wrote, the purchasing power of that stone remains, therefore as valid as if it were leaning visibly against the side of the owner's house, and represents wealth as potentially as the hoarded inactive gold of a miser in the Middle Ages or as our silver dollar stacked in the treasury in Washington, which we never see or touch, but trade with on the strength of a print certificate that they are there. It's the belief that it had value. Felix Martin wrote, Yap's money was not the Fay, but the underlying system of credit accounts and clearing of which they helped to keep track. The Fay were just tokens by which these accounts were kept. They had an accounting system that tracked the trading of fish and sea cucumbers. And they would have outstanding balances. And sometimes they would settle up and maybe they would move the Fay, but oftentimes they wouldn't. But there was the record that was there. Peter Bernstein, in his book, The Power of Gold, The History of an Obsession, wrote, The Fay of Yap were stores of wealth. Stores of wealth sit. Money moves. It travels from one pocket to another. A store of wealth is mass. It was the transactions, the accounting record, and the trust between the participants that formed their monetary system. The stones were a store of wealth, but were just some tokens. The first documented use of money is from Sumer, around 3500 BC. This is in southern Mesopotamia. There were vast temple and palace complexes there with thousands of craftspeople, farmers, shepherds, and bureaucrats. And they wrote on clay tablets in cuneiform script, and they wrote contracts involving the workings of the temple, debts owed, rents, effectively It was money because it was an accounting record, and you would have accounts receivable that you could trade. David Graeber, who recently passed away in his book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, wrote the value of a unit of currency is not the measure of the value of an object, but the measure of one's trust in other human beings. A second example of money is from China around 1000 AD in the province of Sichuan. Many provinces in China use bronze as coins, but in Sichuan, they used iron because there wasn't much bronze. Iron's a lot heavier than bronze. Goldstein points out, to buy a pound of salt, you needed about a pound and a half of iron coins. So about 995 AD, there was a merchant in Sichuan named Chengdu who let people store their iron coins with him. And then he'd give them a receipt, like a coat check ticket. And that receipt was transferable. So people started transferring this paper, which was backed by iron coins. And then some people started producing paper without having it backed by iron coins, at which point the state took over and said that they would issue this coin-backed paper. Because many people couldn't read, these paper notes had a picture of the number of coins it could be exchanged for, and a landscape or a streetscape, different colors. 
and usually a warning, such as this one from 1100 AD that said, by imperial decree, criminals who counterfeit this bill are to be punished by beheading. It was an example of paper currency backed by what was considered precious, bronze or iron. And because it was easy to facilitate transactions with this paper, the economy expanded. There was more money and there was great ingenuity during that period. Movable type was invented, the magnetic compass, new agricultural techniques, printed books. There was greater specialization as farmers and craftsmen specialized in certain aspects. But then in 1215, Genghis Khan invaded and captured Beijing. 45 years later, his grandson Kublai Khan was elected the Great Khan. He took over the empire, and these Chinese goods spread throughout Asia and to Europe. And they were still using this paper money, and they'd been using it for several hundred years. In fact, Kublai Khan wanted them to use money and made it illegal to use bronze coins for trade. The explorer Marco Polo wrote, this paper money is circulated in every part of the great Khan's dominions. Nor dares any person at the peril of his life refuse to accept it in payment. All of his subjects receive it without hesitation, because wherever their business may call them, they can dispose of it again in the purchase of merchandise they may require, such as pearls, jewels, gold, or silver. With it, in short, every article may be procured. All of his majesty's armies are paid with this currency, which is to them of the same value as if it were gold or silver. It was paper, used as money. And then Kublai Khan wanted to invade Japan and started printing more money that wasn't backed by anything. It still had pictures of bronze coins, but the government would no longer allow people to exchange it for those coins. In the same way, there came a time when citizens could no longer take a dollar bill and convert it to gold. This was fiat currency, backed by nothing. And yeah, prices jumped. There was some inflation. But Goldstein points out that the center held, that the economy continued to expand and grow, and people still trusted the paper, even though there wasn't anything backing it. Goldstein writes, after 300 years of using paper money, people in China had figured out that paper money worked not because it was backed by silver or bronze, but because everybody agreed paper could be money. It didn't last, though. In 1368, the Mongols were pushed north of the Great Wall and the Ming Dynasty began. And by the mid-1400s, paper money had disappeared from China. They went back to their old way of using silver as money, and sometimes they would use copper coins. These two examples of the stone money of the Yap and the fiat paper money of ancient China show that money is trust. You need the trust, people to believe that it's money, irrespective of what it is, and that most money is virtual. It's just units of account. It's accounting, documenting who owes what to whom. My first encounter with this type of money was being a small child and having a savings account at a credit union. I assumed that my money was there, but all I had was a little passbook that printed out that I had some money. Not very much. I remember the neighbor across the street who was 
three or four years older than me, had $100 in his account. That seemed like an incredibly large amount of money. It was just digits on a passbook, but I trusted that accounting record. So money is trust. It's accounting. But there's also can be a token aspect to it, a coin or a bill that facilitates exchange. And when you use that coin or bill, there doesn't even need to be an accounting record. There can be some anonymity. You just buy something and give them those coins or bills and you're done. Now, one of the challenges with money is making sure there's enough of it to facilitate trade, but not too much so that inflation comes and trust is diminished and prices rise. We've discussed a lot examples of too much inflation, such as episode 287 on what causes hyperinflation. We're less familiar with examples of how too little money can lead to falling prices or deflation. At least in my mind, it's just not as intuitive. There's a paper by Ben Bernanke, former Fed chair, written in the early 1990s, and Harold James. It's titled, The Gold Standard Deflation and Financial Crisis in the Great Depression. He gives an example, a thought experiment, where it's a very simple economy. You have gold, which serves as money, and you have consumer goods. And he gives the example that there's a one-time addition to the amount of gold in the economy. And the authors write, at initial prices, there will be an excess supply of gold and an excess demand for goods because there's more money. So people can pay more because there's now more gold in the system. And they point out that prices must adjust to restore an equilibrium in the market for gold and consumer goods. They point out that people will sell gold and purchase consumer goods with it, which would lead the prices of goods to rise and the real price of gold falls. So the price of consumer goods in terms of gold is now higher. They write, adjustment in these two markets are two sides of the same coin. In a two commodity world, there exists only one relative price. So a rise in one commodity price is the same as a fall in the other. It's just like an exchange rate between two currencies. If one currency is strengthening, the other is weakening. If the price of gold is rising, then the price of consumer goods is falling. And those relative prices depend on the supply of consumer goods versus the supply of gold and the demand. If the amount of goods produced increases relative to the supply of gold, so the gold amount is steady, but there's more goods then the price of goods will fall and there'll be deflation. And that was the case sometimes under the gold standard where money was backed by gold. There was 20 years of deflation in the U.S. from 1873 to 1896 until there were new discoveries of gold in the Klondike up in Alaska. And that reversed the trend to where there was then some inflation. The problem with deflation is if the price of goods are falling, then income is also falling. And if your income is falling, it makes it extremely difficult to pay off debt and you can get a downward deflationary spiral. There's always a balance between how much money is there and how many goods are being produced. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. 
Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. There's a paper from 2018 by Jim Reed and his co-authors that was issued by Deutsche Bank titled The History and Future of Inflation. They're right. It may not feel like it, but we live in inflationary times relative to long-term history. Before the start of the 20th century, prices crept higher only very slowly over time and were often flat for long periods. In the UK, prices were broadly unchanged between 1800 and 1938. However, inflation moved higher everywhere else across the globe at numerous points in the 20th century. And they point out that UK prices since 1938 are up by a multiple of 50, about 5,000%. What changed, they asked? Well, for many of those years prior to then, there was a gold standard. Money was backed by something of value. If there was an equilibrium in the amount of gold or other precious metals that backed money and the amount of goods and services produced, you would not get much inflation or much deflation, there would be some price stability. They believe what changed was a population explosion. They write, before this explosion, precious metal currency systems had survived for centuries with only occasional breaks. Beginning in the 20th century, the population grew much faster and the amount of goods and services produced much faster than the supply of gold. That 
put downward pressure on consumer prices. And that's one reason during the Depression, there was deflation. And many countries dropped off of the gold standard, the linkage between their currency and gold, or they weakened it, where the gold reserves didn't need to be 100% backed. It was lower than that to allow an increase in the money supply. There needs to be enough money to facilitate transactions. And if it's all linked to gold, that doesn't work because then too many goods, not enough gold leads to falling consumer prices. Too much money relative to goods and services leads to rising prices, inflation. There's always that balance, that dance. That's one reason that an economy that is solely run on cryptocurrency like Bitcoin wouldn't work because the supply of Bitcoin is limited by the algorithm. And because of that limited supply, as more goods and services were produced, that would lead to deflation, falling prices, which again would make it very difficult for those that have borrowed money to repay it because their incomes would be dropping. It would be deflationary. A final point about money that I had never really considered was brought up by Peter L. Bernstein in his book, The Power of Gold. He writes, value alone is insufficient for a substance to qualify as money. Lots of things have value that do not serve as money. In fact, the most effective forms of money have developed from objects that were otherwise quite useless, such as paper and computer blips. In modern times, nothing useful has ever functioned as money for very long. Useless things. One reason gold is an excellent money source is because the metal's so soft. It's not practical to make a lot of things out of it. Certainly jewelry, but there's not a lot of industrial uses for gold compared to other metals, which are harder. It's also scarce. So that helps. Bernstein continues, seen from the perspective of uselessness, the electronic blips on computer screens that comprise most of the money in the modern world, are the best form of money. We have no other use for them. They are readily recognizable as money. They weigh a lot less than gold or even paper, and they are easily transferable. They can be broken down into any amount we choose, from a penny to trillions of dollars and even beyond. They are as durable as we wish them to be. And they have a kind of magic that commands our respect. Digits make the best money. Because it's easily dividable, they're not terribly useful other than to account for transactions between individuals, but it still comes back to the elements that are needed, a trust-based system of accounting with some tokens, such as coins or bills used to facilitate exchange, but most of it is just digits. The tokens themselves are best when there's no other inherent use. It can't necessarily be used for something else. But it's also helpful if that token is rare. There's some type of scarcity. case of gold, the scarcity is because it's difficult to get. In the stone money of the apps, it's difficult to get. With U.S. dollar, there's a monopoly issuer. The Federal Reserve, along with the U.S. Mint, issue the paper bills and coins. But the digits, the creation of the money, is done through the commercial banking system. And the Federal Reserve and other central banks coordinate with the commercial banking system to make sure there's not too much money created through lending. But clearly, since 
countries have gone off the gold standard, inflation has been significantly higher because it is easier to create money using digits than any other source. Yet our modern monetary system survives. A lot of criticism, a lot of back and forth, but at the end of the day, we still trust our current monetary system. We account for our transactions using modern currencies. We're willing to accept them, get paid in them. Yet, it's important as investors that we don't overly trust it and diversify our sources of money. It's okay to own some cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies benefit because there is a limited supply. But they're every bit as digital as the U.S. dollar or the euro. Useless for anything else except to record transactions and value. And own things that actually produce, that are useful. Real assets can be helpful for that. So there's always a mix. The monetary system has and will evolve as trust increases and wanes. Hyperinflation usually results from a lack of trust and too much money creation. And there's no guarantee that the trust in our current system will continue. And perhaps decades down the road, we'll use a different form of money. Invariably, though, it will be based on trust and there will be a system of accounting tied to it to keep track of transaction, a ledger. There'll be a token aspect to it that could be used for some of the transactions to maintain anonymity. And there will need to be the delicate balance between the amount of money created and the amount of goods and services being produced so that we don't get deflation or too much inflation. There's so many books on money because it's endlessly fascinating. And we have to kind of go through these principles again and again just to grasp them because money can be so abstract and unbelievable that this is what we use. Useless things give them value and give them value because there's trust and there's a system of trust built around them. That then is episode 316. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing to become a better investor, I have two ways that I can help you with that. First, you could subscribe to my free email newsletter. It's called The Insider's Guide. It's where I'll share the links and articles that I mentioned in the podcast episode, as well as an essay on money, investing in the economy, and other valuable content. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. The second way that you can become a better investor, get more serious about your investing, is to become a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. With Plus membership, you get access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help you stay on track, tune out the noise, and grow your wealth with confidence. With your growing net worth, isn't it time to invest like a professional with a focus on global multi-asset class portfolios, reasonable expected return and risk assumptions, achieving a real net of inflation growth, strategic adjustments as markets and economies evolve, and controlling fees and taxes? Money for the Rest of Us Plus is for those who choose to manage their own investments. It provides tools and training to manage an institutional quality investment portfolio. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. 
Have a great week.